In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Come, Holy Spirit, and anoint our time together. Work through each of us so that we may learn what you want us to learn, grow in the ways you want us to grow. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. So this week, it is... The topic is humility, let Jesus take over. And I want to begin with a, a little quote from the Bible. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, uh, verses 8 and 9. Uh, St. Paul is talking about this thorn in his side. Three times I besought the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. I will all the more gladly boast of my weaknesses, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Today we're going to talk about allowing that grace to heal us and transform us more deeply, and how humility plays a role in allowing that to happen. Uh, how acknowledging our weaknesses allows that power of God to take hold more thoroughly in our lives. Uh, and then next week's the companion uh, disposition that's necessary, you, you may recall, of confidence in God and, and deepening our, our confidence in God and our trust in God. The two must go together, but we're going to focus merely on the first half this week. Um, and I want to begin with Marmion's little... Reflection on that passage right there. I'm on page 99. St. Paul gloried in the fact that all he had was from Jesus Christ. That while immensely rich in him, of himself he had nothing but weakness, infirmity, and wretchedness. He felt that there were two men in him, the one poor and wretched, the other resplendent with the merits of Christ. So when he comes to himself after his sublime ecstasy, he cries, For such a one, caught up to the third heaven, I will glory. But for myself, I will glory in nothing but in my infirmities. And he adds these astounding words, Gladly, therefore, will I glory in my infirmities. And why? That the power of Christ may dwell in me. We have our moments of temptation and discouragement. How miserable we feel at these times. We feel that we are nothing, that we can do nothing. Let us remind ourselves then with St. Paul that we are infinitely rich in Jesus Christ. I want to dwell just for a second on that richness, on this notion that each of us is a beloved son or daughter of God with immense dignity, you know, destined for glory. Uh, certainly in the time to come, but also here and now. Uh, of all those graces that God wants to do in our lives, there's, there's no reason to kind of accept Christian humility in the level we're talking about, unless you're trying to allow God to work something great in your life, whatever that path of blessing is that he has for your life. Uh, we remember that it's that good Father who has that path of blessing for each of us, and that is why we're trying to seek him in this kind of humble confidence of how to find that blessing and stay on it. Um, so we're rich, and we've said before, we can do all things in him, you know, if we stay in that path of blessing. 
uh, rich in that way, that, that rich in blessing. Um, and rich with natural gifts as well. I don't want to deny that, but we're focusing at the moment on the supernatural gifts that we're seeking. So just again, that's the, the purpose for all of this, is to grow in that richness. And let's not lose sight of that as we uh, kind of get through the trickier parts of how to grow in that. We've talked um, about grace and about merits. So I'll just do a little reminder real quick um, that we think that God can work within us. The power of God can work within us and transform us and heal us. Uh, that, that that's a real aspect of our lives. We can do wonderful things with God's help and we can call those merits. Uh, we try to attribute those to God. And then in one phrasing the saints use is that if so, that's kind of on one side of the coin, this is God's coin. On the flip side of the coin, it's not my coin, right? So it's true in my life that God works in my life. But if I'm going to truly attribute it to who's doing the power, I have to give him the credit while still acknowledging it in my life. And that's the fundamental paradox that we're going through in this course. So uh, with that as a background, let's talk. We've talked a little bit about wanting grace. We've talked a little bit about trying to want God's program and not our own program. But uh, for a moment now, let's talk a little bit about attributing things to God. You know, it's so easy for us if we go to the ICU and pray over a little girl and all the vital signs, you know, miraculously change and the doctors can't explain it and she walks out the hospital perfectly well. It's very easy at that moment to say, well, I think I was an instrument of God and that and it's God that sent her out of the hospital. That's a pretty simple thing to attribute to God. Um, but how often do we, A, seek God's help in the little things of life and B, attribute that help to him? You know, and, and we can recall these little conversations, again, that can be trickier in life when we don't necessarily have the words. So we can say to ourselves, come Holy Spirit, give me the words I need for this talk or for talking to, to someone else. And then if it goes well, and the person says, wow, that was just what I needed to hear, you can say, well, thanks be to God, right? Pretty easy thing to again say, I, I think God played a role in that. And this is just deepening that same disposition. Now, I want to come at it a different way, and this is going to get a little deeper here for a second, and talk about how self-reliance, that kind of telling God, like, I don't need you right now. Like, you're kind of getting in the way. I, I kind of know I got a lot to do, and I don't really have time for you to kind of trip me up right now. Um, we do that a lot, even at a practical level. Um, but I want to just kind of think through how we do that even more when we start to attribute his work to ourselves. Um, so when we attribute his work to ourselves, we can kind of have this distorted sense of self-worth, right? And then from that, a sense of entitlement. And then from that, a sense of maybe grasping after something. And then if we don't get it, we can start that self-reliance even more, right? If we kind of keep down that path that's not the path of blessing, and we think, well, no, I'm just going to keep hammering home at that. Um, 
And we kind of come up with new motives for the self-reliance as we're getting further off the path of blessing. Uh, and that eventually can lead to some bitterness, perhaps. But is it not that we want to stay on the actual path of blessing and allow that to, to be, we want to discern that, and then we want that to animate what we do? We talked a little bit last week about the three conversions. Uh, we talked a little about, about different stages of growth and development in uh, the spiritual life, and about how that last conversion is especially one in which we really have to surrender our program. You know, we really have to surrender uh, the self-reliance, the technical term, the semi-Pelagianism, of trying to do things somewhat ourselves. Um, and just to go into that technical definition real quick, you know, semi-Pelagianism says, I can either kick something off and God will bless it, keep it going and, and finish it, or maybe God will kick something off and I can keep it going and maybe he'll get involved in finishing it. Uh, or maybe like he does the first two and then I'll just finish it off. Uh, the real orthodox uh, response to this dilemma, which was a real attempt to try to give a, a fuller explanation of how self-will um, is involved in it, is that God has to initiate, sustain, and complete every meritorious work of heaven. We can't win heaven on our own. Uh, but also in the minor works that we do, if we're going to attribute them to God, we want each of those to be involved. Can he get involved if we kick it off? Yeah, sure, of course, right? But this is, generally speaking, the, the way to approach this. Um, so the, the semi-Pelagian just takes one of those and says, well, you know, isn't there a role for me, you know, choosing this? And like we said, the God's kind of complex and mysterious, but generally speaking, the church tries to get God involved in every point. And what we say then is that God's always offering each of those, and we're choosing them at each moment if we're in the path of blessing. So that's where the, the choice actually happens. Uh, so, and then they're real. Like if, if we allow God to initiate, sustain, and complete something in our lives, let's call that 50 years of marriage, you know, we, it's real, right? And we did choose that at each step, and we can also give God thanks for that at each step as well. So, um, the difficulty in this third conversion is that we really have to relinquish this desire for control of one of those steps. Uh, and, and it's that part of, it, of the surrender that gets so kind of even bewildering at times. Um, and the more deeply we're into this self-reliance or not seeking his grace, the more of a transition we have to make. The argument for this type of spirituality is that what we're actually trying to do is surrender, and that this point of view of this humble confidence in God is giving you the efficient route through a process that God has to actually control. Let me say a word about that. You know, the saints say this, this kind of subtle self-reliance is kind of like the vainglory, the vanity of the, of, the, of the Christian side of pride. And they say it's really hard <laughs> to kind of get at the core of that. Um, and, you know, St. Cassian, for example, says that 
it's like a, an onion that the more you, you peel off a layer, you have another layer yet still below to find. Um, and I think the author of The Imitation of Christ pinpointed it when he said, can nothingness boast of its nothingness? That would be the height of vanity. So it's not just knowledge of this topic that's going to be of help. It's actually letting God transform us by his grace uh, and then uh, hopefully attributing that to him step by step and letting that step by step play itself out by his power. Um, in so many words, that final step is one where God has to liberate us from our, our deepest idol to ourselves. And, and it's that that really we can't effect on our own. And that's why it takes this kind of what the saints call a passive purgation. You have to just kind of go through God's process. And then you'll make it through on the other side, purified. These dispositions are just to help to get through God's process more, helpful, more efficiently. And that's all that we're talking about today. Turning to Marmion again, we can talk about weakness under this, this lens. And I'm on page 92. It is a great thing to be conscious of our weakness and of the necessity of asking our Lord's help. He said, without me you can do nothing, John 15, 5. You already knew this, but now it has become a deep conviction. Our miseries are the title to God's mercy. St. Paul was conscious of his weakness, but instead of being discouraged, he said, Gladly will I glory in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may dwell in me. When one has been in the habit unconsciously of leaning on one's own strength, and this fails, it requires a certain time to get accustomed to leaning on God alone. This is the state you are in. You have made much progress in recent months, but you have not yet learned to put your trust in God alone. In your spiritual life, avoid examining yourself too much. It is enough that God knows you. Lose yourself in him, and you will find yourself in him. It is far more advantageous for you to look at God than to look at yourself. Your union with God, who is immutable, will give you the stability the steady line of conduct which you seem to lack more or less at present. This accepting our weakness, our frailty, our foibles, our sinfulness, is part of this transition of saying, okay, well, that's me, right? If I try to do it by my own strength, that's what I find. I find my weakness, you know? Um, but if I do it by your strength, I find strength and help. Um, and just adapting to the next time that you see it, okay, well, that was me again. That was my weakness again. And that, that, that's the point at which we can make the turn, right? Of saying, okay, but I really do want you to just do this for the rest of my life. I want you to take over. I want you to relive your life in me. I want your grace to be what's, what's actually working in me. So interestingly enough, it's when, when we hit those kind of sort of rock bottoms in our spiritual life that we're closest to the transformation that we're talking about. Because that's when we're close enough to say, okay, I really want you to do this. I really want you to take over. And there's another way of looking at this transition. It's from 
Some could say trying to win God. Some could say, you know, looking for importance in everything, uh, putting yourself at the center of everything, and then eventually putting God in the center of everything. But another way of, of looking at this, especially on the, the lens of our weakness, is to become not someone who builds a monument for God, but someone who is a monument to his mercy. And I'm sure you've heard this quote already, but I I think it speaks really deeply of this transition. Be a monument of his mercy for all eternity. The greater the wretchedness and the unworthiness, the greater and more adorable his mercy. Abyss calls upon abyss. The abyss of our wretchedness invokes the abyss of his mercy. It is an immense consolation for me to see that you are traveling by this road which is so sure, which leads to such heights, and which glorifies the precious blood of Jesus Christ and the mercy of God. It is the way I have chosen to help me by your prayers. When we are ready to just receive his mercy as a grace and live from that and give it to other people, We've really made that change from trying to be important for him, be complete for him, be perfect for him. It's just like, no, I'm just my weak self, but he's good to me. He, teaches, he treats me like a beloved son, and he wants to treat each of us like a beloved son and daughter. He wants that mercy to spread, not that perfection necessarily to spread. Um, that's a deeper surrender to his mercy, to his graces. That's the type of surrender that can forgive at a deep level. That's the type of, uh, of, of surrender that could, could face the difficulties of this life, I think, with a manful humility that can say, well, I'll find my path of grace, my path of blessing forward. Uh, and, and that's, you know, again, that's, that's quite challenging. That's quite a change sometimes. So this prompts a question. Can this kind of point of view lead to uh, depression or something that's, that's more negative in life? I mean, this nothingness is a negative term. You know, it's a strongly, he's talking about wretchedness and, and, and he's using very strong terms always within the, the, the lens of God's mercy descending even that far, always within that lens of how mercy is deeper than any of it. Um, and, you know, as a spiritual theologian, we're not in the professional trade of, of diagnosing um, depression or whether something can be depressive. If this is not helping, don't follow it. I mean, that's the easiest thing, right? Um, but I think... It's necessary, it's given how often the saints use this language, I think to try to understand why it is that they use it and why perhaps it's helpful in their lives and then why it could be applicable in certain lives or in our lives. Um, if any of it you know, gives you too much pause, there's always other great chances uh, to receive God's healing in different ways. I mean, we love working with psychological professionals, but also... Even here in St. Louis, the Healing and Deliverance Ministry does great work, like very efficiently with people. You get the Holy Spirit involved, and a lot of good can happen very quickly in a person's life. Um, so just as 
We can pray for faith healing for relief from cancer, for example. Uh, you can do the same thing for, for trauma, emotional wounds, whatever. Uh, and I think it's very powerful sometimes to watch God at work in that setting uh, and what can happen. I think more importantly about this spirituality, though, I just kind of give those in case any of this is too heavy for a person. Uh, this spirituality is one that has, in Marmion's expression of it, a real challenging goal it's trying to achieve. So it's got that real high aspiration, union with God. This notion that there's a real difficulty, obstacle towards that challenging goal and how to kind of find help or God's help through that. It would be absurd for us to seek union with God here below by our own strength. It can only be received as a gift along his processes, along his ways of blessing. And so how do we get onto that and, and receive it? Because we do believe it's on offer for everyone in the church. We do again believe that Lumen Gentium chapter 5 says that it's there for everyone. It's the normal development of each of our lives of grace. One example I can offer is Mother Teresa. So she uses this, this uh, way of thinking a lot, and specifically because of Marmion. Um, so she loved Marmion, and here's just one quote from her, just a proof of that. Today I read something in Abbot Marmion, Suffering with Christ. When this fire, God's love, comes into contact with imperfection, it produces suffering. There must be so much of nothingness in me, and so this fire causes so much pain. Pray for me. The editor of Come Be My Light um, has a whole chapter on her use of the word I am nothing and her nothingness. Uh, and, she, and he talks about the early messages. This is one of the early messages on it, uh, where she's kind of going through the purification. And then the later messages where she's really reached a deep peace about herself and God and giving that to others. And we're going to see that transformation in just a second. But the reason I highlight her is she's easily accessible for us all. Um, she was obviously a person of great charity, active charity. She was obviously a person who brought God's mercy to the most uh, abject you know, poverty there is, and did that day after day for so many decades, in really a place that not many people want to work, you know, in the sense of pulling lepers off of the, the streets, um, pulling off the, the dying from the streets, and et cetera. So she's got that image, like, there must be something to that. And I think she'd be one of these that's very, she says, like, I'm a pencil in God's hand. She's one of these people who says that God is doing this through me. This is an act of grace. This is a work of God's grace and God's mercy. Uh, and she's very clear about it, and she was joyful about it. And for that, I want to turn real quick to um, another book about her. I Love Jesus in the Night uh, by Father Paul Murray, who was um, the director of my thesis, uh, the, the early parts of this book, in Rome. He was a spiritual friend of Mother Teresa, and he writes this about one of their uh, meetings. The fact of being chosen for this particular work 
in this particular way was the matter of continual astonishment to Mother Teresa. I remember her remarking on three or four occasions, in this age more than in any other, God wants to use nothing. Nothing, I discovered as time passed, was a word she liked to use a lot. On another occasion, she declared, Father Paul, when you discover you're nothing, rejoice. Here as much as the accent of joy, the note of liberation is telling. For what Mother Teresa means by being nothing is in no way connected with the cold imprisonment of self-mistrust or to what is nowadays low, called low, low self-esteem. It is true Mother Teresa always approached God in deep poverty of spirit. But at the same time, with an equal profundity of spirit, she trusted absolutely in his love for her. I note that little conversation because, I mean, Father Murray, even at that time, was someone well-versed in spiritual theology. He'd been teaching in Rome as the chair of spiritual theology of his university for a long time. And she, she was trying to teach him something. She was trying to teach him something about transformation in Christ, about something that had really unlocked something for her, like a deeper peace for her. And she wanted him to not miss that narrow way, you know? Um, she, she wanted him to be able, if he recognized it, and he was probably sharing his own feelings of all this with her, uh, and, and, and she wanted to, to, to affirm it, like, this is okay. This is a path that, that, that's safe, as other saints have said. And I think that's with the qualification of, as long as it's not burden you, weighing you down, as long as you're getting up and doing your work, that's one of those key distinctions between, um, you know, real depression and kind of a dark night of the soul. If you're actively still living your life uh, and going through, through everything, I think, with charity, that's one of your key distinctions there. If, if, you're, if it's becoming too much of a burden, there are many aspects of, for help, and that's why I mentioned them before. Um, so let's now look at her... On the other side, a little bit later, another comment, another letter uh, by her on the same topic. You had said yes to Jesus, and he has taken you at your word. The word of God became man, poor. Your word to God became Jesus, poor, and so this terrible emptiness you experience. God cannot fill what is full. He can fill only emptiness, deep poverty, and your yes is the beginning of being or becoming empty. It is not how much we really have to give, but how empty we are, so that we can receive fully in our life and let him live his life in us. Skipping a little bit. Take away your eyes from yourself and rejoice that you have nothing, that you are nothing, that you can do nothing. Give Jesus a big smile each time your nothingness frightens you. Skipping a little bit again. Accept whatever he gives and give whatever he takes with a big smile. You belong to him. Tell him I am yours. And even if you cut me to pieces every single day, you will be, I will be all yours. She seems to be becoming more confident of teaching this 
to other people. This is a letter of spiritual direction of hers uh, to a co-worker of Christ. Um, she seems to really kind of start to be an evangelist of this point of view. Um, and she's undoubtedly, again, speaking from a position of knowing this has worked a transformation in her life. Her writings, too, have this combined attribute of trust. You know, just as... Uh, as we're talking about a humble confidence in God and how these must go together, uh, this is just one side of the coin. This is just the side of the coin that opens us, as we talked about before, of going to God with empty hands so as to be filled. But it's that first, not going to God with something in your hands, but going to God with empty hands so as to be filled. Uh, and then we're going to see the gifts that come from being filled uh, as we go to him with confidence of that, of that gift, of, of that path of blessing. To stress again, this does not leave a person in a void. This is not in any way meant to, you know, be kind of this Buddhist sense of detachment. This is to be filled. To be filled with the best gifts that has, God has to give. Uh, to be filled with, with healing and transforming and perfecting love, but at the depths even of union with God and again to aspire towards that. Um, she quotes Marmion in other places. She tried even to put Marmion in the constitutions of the missionaries of charity, but it didn't pan out. Um, it would not have been wise. But, um, and, and the sisters were able to provide me other examples. Um, so it, it's wonderful to see how she picks up his spirituality and she continues along the same line. It's obviously not just uniquely his. She takes the word Teresa, the name Teresa, because of St. Therese of Lisieux. She's probably following her just as much as Marmion. Um, but it is nice to see a line of connection and development from one to the other. Um, some people speculate that in Marmion's text, for example, there's this, this phrase of um, something along the lines of um, God's mercy is to be given to human misery, uh, something along those lines. And they wonder whether that's kind of one of those first texts that starts to prompt her to think, how do I give this mercy to those who are most in need? It's, it's, a, it's kind of a stretch, that, but it does show the same disposition of Marmion um, wanting to bring mercy again to those places that are most in need of it. It again shows that active side of wanting to go out and bring charity to people. Um, so just as he has in his own spiritual life this great goal and this great desire to, to overcome a challenge, I think she's also in his regular life still bringing that to those around him. Um, so I'll stop there and uh, take questions and see what I can try to do with them. Hopefully see what God can try to do with them through me. Bob. In the, uh, when you talk about getting to the stage where you can look at a, a fault, or you know, when you mess up, you go, well, there I am, that's my weakness. Um, it, it seems like that, you know, a danger in there is, which you're not, I know, no, you're not saying, but how do you avoid the danger of, of then being kind of okay with it and getting stuck? 
just is it more a question of keeping the expectation and God will fill up and take the pass out at some point? Or, you know, as a, you know, in, in the St. Paul with the, the thorn in his side three times a day. So how, in, in, in accepting our weakness, do we uh, avoid getting stuck just right there and kind of and, and, and being a couch potato, okay. you know? Okay. Um, I think that speaks a little bit to what we'll talk about next week uh, in this notion of presumption. So um, I don't think we're meant to just, you know, so totally trusting God that you're just like, well, if I just sit on the couch, God's going to do this all, right? You know? Um, I don't think that works. I don't think playing video games for your whole life brings you to union with God, you know? Um, and I think that's why they both go together. So on the one side, too much humility, even good humility, uh, leads to discouragement, confusion, despair. And bad humility is, is all that humility that makes you feel like a loser somehow. That's kind of just a catch-all category for it. Uh, and that certainly leads to too much confusion, discouragement, despair. And so you have to have the trust in God to balance that out, okay? But on the other side, too much confidence in God without the humility leads to presumption. So it's either the presumption of, I'll play video games for my whole life and come to union with God, or more specifically, that presumption of, I'll do this first part and God will complete it, right? So I'll go buy a company you know, and we're going to take out tons of debt and it's going to work out, right? It's tragic that, right? On a more minor level like you're talking about, I think you do have to kind of keep that goal in mind, right? I have to humbly keep trying to get up and keep trying to walk, holding on to the Father's hand, you know, rather than tripping up on my own, or rather than running forward on my own and tripping up, uh, or rather than just sitting down is another, you know, kind of way of putting it. You have to kind of keep getting up and keep trying to hold his hand and moving forward with him. Does that, that help? So it's all God's role and all your role. I mean, that's the, that's the cheat answer, right? But um, I think the discernment is the, is the better answer. So we have to look at our circumstances and say, well, what is God of asking of me right now in these circumstances? So I'll tell you, I mean, this is a great spot for priests. Like, we look at the empty pews and we're like, I got to do something. And of course we have to do something. But all too often we try too hard. We maybe try the wrong things, right? But because the circumstance is kind of pressing, you feel that kind of extra urge towards the self-reliance that much more. Uh, and that first step of, okay, well, what do you want right here, right now, right? Uh, and, and that can mean... I'll give you an even more practical example that that can mean a step towards healing, right? Like sometimes community's got to take that, that like lateral step of being like, we got to fix the community before we're ready to go back out. I think that grace is one of those steps, right? Like getting everyone back and trying to let God's power be at work in them to heal, transform, perfect them is really important before we start knocking on doors. Because I actually think that's what's actually going to be what people want rather than dogma. So with the myriad of choices of each day, right, even each day, let alone a whole life, how do we not 
get bogged down in constantly trying to figure out what's our next step. Um, I think that, broadly speaking, you have to just kind of trust your desires, okay, and then take the step to discern along the way when that seems appropriate. I would love for people to be seeking, like, little prayers of God, the Holy Spirit, little prayers of help me along my day more, um, but I wouldn't be tightly wound about it, right? I, I think that the more that just kind of peacefully enters into our life, the more it'll help. Um, but I think you have to trust, you, you know, generally the lines that God's put you in. If you have on your heart making a big transition in life, it's time to discern that and maybe talk with someone about that. Um, but if it's a question of do I spend a little bit more time with my family or do I pray for 30 minutes, I mean, you can step back maybe every once in a while, every month, every quarter to kind of say where's the balance and do I have the balance right? I don't think you have to do it every single second of every single day. How does um, self-reliance vary according to income level? How does self-reliance vary according to income level? I can only say I think our janitors are amazing people at this. <laughs> I mean, I am so edified by them. Um, maybe God's given me gifts of explaining it, but I think they just easily live it. Does that make sense? Um, I don't know my income level. I, I don't know if I could do it like that. I can say, and this was a question that came afterwards last week, I could say as Americans, we're highly given to it, right? So the more you're kind of in that, th that push, right, um, of America's perform, 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 um, I think we're just naturally given to it. And a little explanation on that is that I think each nation has one of God's transcendentals as its primary focus. Um, so the classic example is Italy uh, the three transcendentals are goodness, truth, and beauty. Uh, the classic uh, example is Italy. I think they love beauty, right? And they even say the goal of life is a beautiful life. They don't use the word good the way we do. Uh, in Germany, the, the height of, of German accomplishment is to be the doctor, doctor. So, like, truth is really highly valued in Germany. We love goodness, and we're all about efficiency and effectiveness and performance and accomplishment. And, um, and those are all good, right? We, we said it last time. Those are good in themselves. Importance good in itself. But if we make an idol of it and it pushes out our energy for things that are more important for us, that's time to take a step back and rebalance. Um, are there certain strata of the economics uh, uh, scheme that pushes more than others? I don't know, you know. But I think we all have it as Americans. Yeah. <coughs> Mom. Yeah, this book of are you, are anyone at the monastery still thinking about giving healing prayers? So we did some healing prayer services uh, before COVID. 
Uh, and we did a number of them in the monastery as well. This, this healing and deliverance work, um, we did it in the monastery uh, a number of times. We had it every month during COVID. Uh, so we took that lateral step to work on the community during COVID. It was, it was a good first step. Um, we did it with the public two, maybe three times now in different settings. Um, I think we'll do them more. Uh, I've been wanting to put another one onto the calendar and just haven't gotten there yet. Um, but there's, th that's great. That's a great moment, especially if it's all new to you and the charismatic gifts are new to you. Um, but I think a lot of the great deep work, especially for emotional healing, happens in little sessions with like two people praying with you. Um, the Catholic Renewal Center is very good at that. And, and I'm happy to participate in that. Uh, some people come out and see me here and we bring other people in to be there. Um, but they're really good at that. They do it all day, every day. So I collaborate with them. So I picked up a different book on the Christian life, and it had topics in their table of contents like relationship to God, self, and others. Is there like a certain <coughs> thing that you all follow when you're writing about the spiritual life? Um, is there a certain formula I follow when writing about the spiritual life? And in particular, on humility, talking about humility with God, ourself, and others, that appears something like page 25 in the book. Um, no? <laughs> it's really hard when you're just writing. You just try to think of ways to categorize things. Uh, and that just seemed like one way of, of categorizing that information. So I didn't talk about that part this evening, um, but there's some good bits in that area about humility as well, some kind of preparatory bits. So is, there, is it good from time to time to have a period of asking oneself, how's my life going? Yes, right? We, we, like, we advocate retreats. We advocate you know, taking that time from time to time to just step back and evaluate. Lent is a great moment. Meetings like this are that, you know, this is doing that just right here in a group with a whole bunch of other people, right? Um, and, uh, but yeah, that's always, again, don't do it every day, every second of the day. <laughs> but uh, yeah, from time to time, that's a great thing to ask oneself. But dynamic, it's not just a stagnant process. Right. So, so Dietrich says, you know, Mother Teresa had really dark moments, and it, they're here on full display in this book, Come Be My Light. I want to say two things about that um, so that you're not discouraged by it. Um, there are two sides of that. And the first side is that, yes, that deepest conversion is kind of a difficult, you know, all the saints talk about that dark night of the soul, which is that deeper one, which is for a long time you're used to God's gifts and you're used to the spiritual life. And he's calling you to that next stage of saying, Yes, but I want you to love me for me, not just my gifts. And so he withdraws the gifts for a period of time to prepare you for that ultimate gift of himself and of living the gifts of the Holy Spirit as fully as possible and the, the um, fruits of the Holy Spirit as fully as possible after that, that, that final purification. And that final purification is tricky, right? And that the numerous saints talk about that. That giving up the self-reliance, that giving up and surrendering fully uh, is a transition. But it's, it's also a transition to a deeper transformation that they're grateful for in the end. 
So that's one aspect. And we talked a little bit about how this humble confidence helps get through that dark night. And my professors in Rome talked about two aspects of the dark night. It's not just in prayer. Like sometimes they call it, like one of them called it a stormy dark night. Like sometimes it means like your life falls apart, right? You lose a job, you, you know, you get cancer, you get all kinds of different, like there's a whole bunch of things that happen in your life that just make your life feel out of control too. Uh, and those, there are those aspects of life, right? That's a real aspect of life. And those are the things we passively suffer through for the deeper purification. The other side of it is, if you're looking at a Mother Teresa, or if you're looking at a St. Therese, they offered themselves as victim souls, okay? So like they made a whole new level of offering of saying, I see your gifts, I see your mercy, I want as many people in this world to receive it as possible. And however you want me to relive Jesus' life, even if that means my own mini crucifixion, if that benefits more people, they would say, do it. I would say, don't go make that deal with God unless you're really, 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 really ready for it. Because, and my professors in Rome were dead serious about that. They were like, no, you do not make that deal with God unless you are very deeply reflecting on that deal with God, because he's going to take you seriously. Um, so in a sense, she invited some of the darkness in. Um, maybe so like a Dietrich would have less of it. Yeah. What is the role of a theologian if he can develop a relationship with God by just reading the Bible? What is the role of a theologian if you can develop your relationship with God just by reading the Bible? I think it's a great question. Um, you know, the Bible is the word of God, and it'll transform your life if you let it, right? Um, that said, there is 2,000 years of practice at letting God transform your life by way of it, and we can learn from those who have gone down the path before us, right? I am so grateful to live after St. Therese. Because I much prefer her little way than, say, the ways of the ascetics of the ancient uh, Egyptian desert. Like St. John Cashin, he thought the way you did this was going way out in the desert and drinking as little water as possible and having a fig once a year for your dessert. And I don't get it, <laughs> right? Like, you can make all kinds of mistakes with this book, too, right? And so we've kind of been reflecting on both the mistakes and the growth over time. I do think that there, in, my, in, my, in spiritual theology, we study the, the, the growth over time of how you get better at this. And I think she's one of those fundamental people who really helped things become much more simple and efficient. And I think that, I argue, Marmion only followed in her footsteps on that. Um, and she followed on other footsteps, right? Or other, uh, other she was on the, uh, whatever. You get what I mean. Sure. Uh, okay, on page 32, I talk about uh, ex uh, renouncing excessive emotional response to people. Glad that word's there. Excessive. Um, and how to do so. I cannot find it right away. I'm glad about that. 
but um, <laughs> I, I think that we all have obsessive. I think we all have uh, <laughs> obsessive attachments in our life, and and even in relationships, as good as they are and as as necessary as they are in life, we can become obsessively attached, right? You can have the jealous husband, the classic jealous husband, right? You could have all these relationships that you do get kind of too entangled in. Um, anything that's, again, taking your energy away from something that is more important, and even in a spousal relationship of God, if it's distracting from God, can be a real obstacle. God brings you that balance, <laughs> as well as other relationships could bring you that balance. Um, okay, it can be painful at first to accept ourselves in the order of the world in this way. Uh, God's providence has allowed the evil that has happened in the Bible, in our history books, in our news, and in our lives. This is talking about the cross that we each have in each of our lives. Confronted with so much evil, we can feel insignificant. At times, our humanity struggles to bear the weight of evil, uh, and that's what you're specifically talking about, right? Unless we renounce any excessive emotional response to it. Okay. And at those moments when it most impacts our humanity, intellectual arguments do not satisfy. When confronted with something in this state, uh, someone in the state, I simply say, or myself in this state, I do not defend God for allowing it to happen, yet I know he wants to heal you of its effects. Um, one of the biggest obstacles to believing in God is that there's evil in this world. And there's pain in this world. And, and we all experience those as real crosses in this world. But I think if you jump to the next paragraph, this is my, my formal response. Um, as one who has at times felt intensely the presence of the effects of evil, I offer you a prayer that has helped me. It is a short adaptation of a part of Francis McNutt's cleansing prayer after healing ministry. It reads, Lord, this suffering weighs heavily on my humanity. It is more than I can bear. Please bear it for me. So, just a context for that, you know, we will pray with a person for two hours about the person's deepest, hardest traumas, right? And we'll go through the stories multiple times, lots of tears. And the people that do this at the CRC, they do this like eight appointments a day every day, right? This is the prayer they pray after each one. Like, Lord, this, the, thank you for this ministry. And they'll see the grace as well. And they'll see the, the healing as well. And it's wonderful. And it's, it's a real privilege to be there. In the end, it's a much greater grace than, than the struggle. But it, is, it does take a toll. You do have to go take a walk after some of these, these things, right? Um, and this prayer is so beautiful. It's like, this weighs heavily on my humanity, right? This is too much for me to bear. And, and life can feel that way, too. Uh, so it's just a rephrasing of the same topic we're talking about, but bear this for me. Like, I am acknowledging my humanity, my weakness, not in moral weakness, just this is heavy, right? It's not even heaviness I caused in my life. I'm helping carry someone else's heaviness. But it's heavy, and I acknowledge that. And almost too heavy for me, right? I'd buckle under it. So bear this. Um, and same with our crosses. So is it God's will, all these negative circumstances of life necessarily, right? Like an accident, for example. Um, no, I mean, God does not cause people to go to war in Ukraine, right? 
Um, God doesn't cause the whole world to start to have concerns about what that means. Um, does he permit it? He permits free will. He wants free will to be part of this life and to freely choose him and to freely build his kingdom, first of all, inside of each of ourselves, like we talked about with Luke 17:20 last time, and then hopefully a bit in our world. But I think the world's always going to be imperfect in that. So it's first finding him here and doing what we can bring beyond us. And we will run into circumstances, natural circumstances, moral circumstances that are foisted upon us that, that are difficulties. But I do think that we can't, I mean the Christian, the classic Christian answer is we can profit from them. That grace can triumph over evil. Romans maybe 5.20. Um, that, that is, that's, that's kind of the classic Christian answer. So seeing God God's healing hand at work, even in terrible circumstances. That's the lens by which Christians read it when they say that it's God's providence. It's not that he's causing it. It's not that he's smiting us or inflicting us. It's that, for whatever reason, he's more there in the healing and the, and the transformation than he is in the pro- prohibiting and in the stopping. No, that's a great question. So, so um, was Marmion charismatic in the way I'm using the term? And, and just simply no. Okay. Um, so the charismatic gifts St. Paul outlines in maybe 2 Corinthians 12, um, those include gifts of healing, those include gifts of, um, of speaking in tongues, gifts of interpretation of tongues, gifts of counsel, and etc. Um, we in the church used to focus on that set of gifts for the first four centuries or so during Confirmation. And then for whatever reason, around the time of St. John Chrysostom, because he still mentions those, so he's a clear marker, we make a transition and we focus on the gifts of the Spirit in Isaiah. can't remember where exactly right now. So when we confirm people, we talk about this other set of the gifts of the Spirit. It's in the early to mid-20th century where there's kind of this re-flourishing of the gifts of the Spirit of St. Paul's list. Um, Just as an aside, I think you can see them in the history of the church. Um, It just wasn't quite as a revival of them as themselves, right? You could see healers. You could see people who did these different things, right? Um, But today there's been this real focus on the Holy Spirit being at work in the church. In a way, charismatic gifts are for other people, so I don't talk as much about them except for when they help us in healing. Um, They're not about our growth in holiness. They have nothing to do with our growth in holiness. If you go work a miracle in the ICU and the girl walks out, it has nothing to do with your holiness. It's God's gift for that girl, and it doesn't actually help my relationship with God. I mean, it, it helps my trust in God, but that's different. Um, but there's a real explosion in the church, and, and more and more in the last, whatever, 50 years, um, they've become a much bigger part of the church. And, uh, and in specifically in this inner healing uh, of, of emotions, the church has gotten better and better and better at that recently, too. And it's really spreading throughout the diocese. 
Uh, we're really good at it here in St. Louis. We've got a lot of people who are dedicated to it, uh, but it's spreading elsewhere. And our teams are called elsewhere uh, when they need help. So like, the people in St. Louis are really good. They're like at the national level of recognized. Um, so there are real gifts here. Um, but that's new, and it was not, that, that was not the case during Marmion's time. So, uh, in a sense, like, that's bringing something new to his, sitting that assign, uh, next to his theology, you know, and, and putting the two together. Uh, so it's a bit of an update. Technically, it is true, though, that each of us has one of these charismatic gifts if we Unleash it, the way people talk about unleashing it is going through a baptism in the spirit course and then praying for the gifts to be unleashed in their lives. Um, generally speaking, you don't end up working with them unless you've already gone through the, the process yourself. Prayer. How do you find God within yourself? Prayer. Um, I think Lexio Divina is another great one, right? Listening to the Word of God and allowing the Holy Spirit to speak about that, that Word to you about your life. That's like a practice in, in, in being attentive to Him. The practice of the presence of God is that, that other, like just being aware that He's already here with us. Um, but those are just kind of the principles, right? The rest is, if He gives you a little touch of consolation, you know, that's him, right? The, the, you, we can't provoke that. We can only kind of put ourselves into a situation to receive it. Um, prayer is that fundamental situation, right? So, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Amen. Come, Holy Spirit, help us to have confidence in you. Uh, we've gone through the, uh, the humility side of it all, and now we're kind of in the depths of, of only uh, accepting our weakness. Uh, help us to be confident next week. You'll show us how you will uh, fill us with your gifts and how to be confident in you. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen.